I want to welcome one of our young people, uh, Peter. We love when Peter speaks because he speaks from the heart. And, you know, Peter is one young man that, you know, he's maturing and growing in faith, in obedience to his parents and to God. And we want to bless you, Peter. We want to encourage you. You know, God has put something so special in your heart. So be free, be open to what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. And just have fun as you speak to us. Bless you. We're going to be continuing our series on uh, what we've been looking at, Jesus through Old Testament eyes. So we're going to look at Numbers, and we're going to start with Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they, the Israelites, set out by way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Now, what's going on here? To help, let's review how the Israelites, God's chosen people, have ended up where they are, wandering in the wilderness in the Arabian, in the Arabian desert. Around 40 years earlier, the people of Israel were kept in captivity in Egypt. There they were under a cruel master. They were forced to labour out in the baking Egyptian sun, cultivating the land and producing bricks. They were there was much demanded of them. There were targets set on how much they had to produce. And they were, they, yeah, they were, they were uh, very much oppressed. Um, they, if, if they stopped working, there would be an Egyptian master standing over them, ready to, to beat them, to get them to work more and more. It was not a good place. Israel was, is, they was lost. They'd been there for generations. Their parents had been slaves. Their grandparents had been slaves. All they knew was slavery and captivity. And so the people cried out against their slavery. They cried out because this was an immense iniquity. And in this time, the Lord God made himself known to Moses, an Israelite by birth. And he said to Moses that he was going to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of captivity. However, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so the, so the people of Israel were kept enslaved for another, another set of years. And so God sent plagues against the Egyptians. He, sent, he turned the Nile to blood. There were swarms of frogs, swarms of gnats, swarms of flies. Livestock were killed. There were boils and sores, sores and storms of hail, locusts and darkness. But even through this, Pharaoh wouldn't relent because God had hardened his heart. It was only when the firstborn in all of Egypt, all the livestock, all the people, only when the firstborn child was, was killed that Pharaoh relented. Now, and this was then when the Israelites were able to escape from their captivity. Now, the reason God hardened Pharaoh's heart was so that the Israelites would know that God was sovereign. He had power over all these things, and it would, because of these things, he was Israel's deliverer. Now, after escaping the land of the Egyptians, the Lord led the people to the Red Sea, and here was their first trial. In front of them was water, as far as the eye could see, and behind them the rampaging Egyptian army, 
because Pharaoh had changed his mind. And at this point, after they've been just brought out of Egypt, God has brought all these plagues on the Egyptians. What, how do they react? What do they think of God? They react in a bad way. They cried out against Moses in dismay, saying, What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Already they were forgetting that the God who had the power to send the plagues was for them. So God then commanded Moses to raise his staff and he split the waters and the Israelites passed through with the towering waves on either side. And because of that, they were saved. In Exodus 14, it says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. It also says that they sang to the Lord that he had become their salvation. Surely nothing could stand between them and God now. He was for them. He brought them out of Egypt. He split the waters. Surely this God was powerful enough to break through in every situation. Yet, as we read on through Exodus, we find the people complaining because they had a need. They felt they had too little food, but they didn't look to God for help. Instead, they cried out again, saying it would have been better to die in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness with no food. Still, like God did with the parting of the water and the plagues, he delivered them. He brought them food with quail for meat and manna for bread. Yet again, when we read further on, we find this happens with water. The people of Egypt, the people of Israel complain against God, and yet again, God provides. He gives them water. Wearily, this pattern continues throughout Exodus. It only takes 40 days of Moses being away on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, hearing from God for the people to make a golden calf to offer sacrifices to, turning away from the commands of God. Over and over, Israel turned from God, doubting his power and neglecting his word. So this is the state that the Israelites are in when we get to that passage in Numbers. We, say, we see they ask again, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This question they've been asking for the last 38 years now, despite God always providing for their needs. To us reading these words, the Israelites look painfully stubborn, completely neglectful of what God had done for them over and over. We say, when will they learn? God has provided for you all these times. Can't you see? This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And this should be our reaction. What is written is given for our example, Paul writes, so we don't follow in their mistakes. We are just as capable of them as of ignoring God's ways and forgetting his provision as we were. And so we need, yeah, we need to see the instruction, what's happened in the past, so we can not follow in that same way. Because as groups and individuals, we easily forget what's come before. It, yeah, um, there was a study published earlier this year looking at floods throughout the last thousand years. And what they did, they looked at where people built settlements after there had been a flood. And they found that they, when there'd been a flood, people moved up to higher ground to be safe from the flood. But it only took 25 years for them, the settlements to start moving back down towards the water, back towards where they'd just been flooded. And, we can, and that, even though it brought so much damage, it was only 25 years approximately, about a generation, 
for the memory faded and people returned to what had um, caused them so much damage in the past. Yeah, we as, we as communities very easily forget what came before. And this is very true as we see in the Israelites. They were lamenting the loss of benefits of being close to a water source, that is to say, food and water in Egypt, and the limited provision they had there. And they were, they were making this complaint right from early on, up until the 25-year mark, and then all the way to where we are now, 38 years later. They've all this time been forgetting God's provision and forgetting the hardship that they had and suffered in Egypt. And yeah, so it, so it can be with us. We too are very much like the Israelites. So we, we've, we might have seen God's great provision, him splitting waters, parting the sea, delivering us from our enemies, yet we forget. And when we, we can enter into a wilderness and it can feel like God's silence and he's not providing for us. We may even complain that God hasn't given us any food in the same breath as we're grumbling about the food we've been given. This might be uh, just a, for a short time, or it might be, have gone on for a long time. Even when we're close to God, we can simply forget some of the things he's said. In all these cases, we must pray to God that, we, that he would help us recognise how he has provided for us. We must remember his actions and his promises. It was, going back to the flood study, it was interesting to read the, the conclusion, concluding notes. They said the way to prevent this kind of returning to, to the follies of the past would be, they would be more, they would, yeah, they would learn, they'd be able to remember their mistakes and learn from that better. And it works also with remembering God's deliverance from, from times of trouble. Because when we're going through times of trouble in the, in the present, we can find it hard to think of how God could deliver us. Yet, in the past, God has done that for us. And we, the more we remember that, the um, easier we will to be able to apply that to our present. It's, yeah, it's good for us to record how God has worked in our lives and share it. When Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, he told him to go home to go declare how much God had done for him. And when we share on Sunday, we are encouraging one another, bringing to the front of our minds God's goodness. The more we share of what God has done, the less likely we are to fall into the folly of the Israelites, who felt God abandoned them. If we write down what God has said to us, we can read it again in our lows when things feel lost. The more we reflect on his works, the closer they will be to the front of our minds in all situations. You see, in forgetting God's works, we become inclined to grumble. We complain of our misfortune and tend to not listen to God. And now for the Israelites, there were immediate consequences for this. They faced judgment in the form of fiery serpents. Now perhaps they are called fiery because of their colour, but more probably it's in reference to their inflammatory and poisonous bites. A snake bite is a horrific thing. Here are some of the symptoms. Severe pain at the location of the bite. Swelling and bruising spreading up the bitten limb. Confusion and dizziness. An irregular heartbeat and paralysis. 
starting with the drooping of the eyelids and progressing down the body to produce an inability to swallow, breathe, or move. And as is the case with the Israelites, it's often fatal. Now, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that this judgment was recorded for our instruction, that we would not repeat their mistakes and feel the agonizing bite of punishment, he, yeah, he, wrote, he wrote that for that reason, that we wouldn't repeat in their mistakes. But if we step back from the immediate context of Israel and look back to Adam and Eve in the garden, we can see that we have already been bitten by a snake, and that snake is sin. Sin is inflammatory. It causes us to be confused, restless, discontented. It makes us dizzy. It takes us in the wrong direction, causes our hearts to love what we shouldn't, putting them out of beat with creation. It fills us with immobilizing fear and anguish and prevents us from seeing correctly. It debilitates our conscience and destroys our will. And finally, the bite of sin is mortal, for the wages of sin is death. This death, ultimately, is eternal separation from God and an inconceivably dreadful doom. And if this passage ended where we left it, there would be no hope for the Israelites and there would be no hope for us. But instead, it reads, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And there is healing salvation for us too. We find in John's Gospel that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is our salvation, the one who has saved us from the bite of sin. Let us look again to the passage to draw out further parallels. Now, it's, it's very instructive that the remedy was a serpent lifted up on a pole, for this is an image of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. We're perhaps used to the image of Jesus being a sacrificed lamb or even a mighty lion, but this image of Jesus being a serpent lifted on a pole seems a bit different, a bit out of the ordinary. But nonetheless, Jesus himself used this passage to explain his death and resurrection. The bronze serpent, though it looked like the fiery snakes that bit, was in fact harmless. It had no poison. In the same way, Jesus was sent by God in the, like, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And what's meant by, by this sinful flesh? A flesh, the word flesh in the Bible usually refers to how we, this is an aspect in our nature that makes us naturally turn against God. It makes us rebellious and it draws us to sin. Now to be in a likeness is, is, um, to be, is to be similar to but not identical. Because Jesus, though he came as a man and lived like us, he grew, he suffered, he faced temptation. He, in all these ways, he was very much in our likeness, yet he wasn't of sinful flesh. Sin entered the world through Adam because, and was passed down through generation through him. And we, yeah, we all follow in that line. But Jesus, because he was, the, he's the son of God, it was not part of this line 
in that way. And so he was free from sin in all that he did. And so this is, this is firstly, this is, um, and this means that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, it meant that he had fulfilled God's, all God's ways perfectly. And this means that on that cross, God could ascribe his righteousness, his perfect life unto us and our sin unto him. Which means that that's, that's, that's what it is when it says that Jesus became sin for us. Not that Jesus was ever guilty of committing sin, but he took on our sins to be an offering for sin. And that's how the serpent on the pole is an image of Christ on the cross. It's our sin lifted up on the cross. Now also notice there was only one bronze serpent in the camp of Israel. Not two or three or four. There is also only one saviour, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. He was chosen by God to be the only way that mankind could be reconciled to himself. If there was a cure the Israelites knew, surely they would have used it. But for them and for us, there is no other means of restoration. The next thing to consider is how the remedy worked. That is, what was the link between the, the, the serpent-bitten man and the bronze serpent that healed him? It was simply this. If an Israelite was bitten, he was to look on the serpent and he would be healed at once. If we look on Jesus and believe in him, we shall be saved. In the instant we put our trust in him, God sees us as redeemed. There was no process of going through priests, offering sacrifices. There was no procedure the bitten man could have done to gets it more likely that he would be healed. He just had to look up at this serpent. Also, if the, even if the bitten man was in the company of healthy people, he was still sick. It was necessary that he looked up himself at the serpent. And it is the same with us. We look on Christ. We must, put, we must look on Christ and put our trust in him for our healing and salvation. There is no other way. Now you may object, he can't save me. I'm a lost cause. Have you seen these sores and bruises? I'm incurable. But everyone who is bitten and looked up was healed. It is written, whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. You may delay putting your trust in him, waiting for the right moment, but the venom of sin will only spread and paralyze you more and more. Why delay your deliverance? Therefore, Look up at Jesus on the cross, and you will be saved. Because of his sacrifice, we can be free from the clutch of sin. What then should we do now? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We should imitate Moses, who was instructed to set the bronze serpent up on the pole. Likewise, we should lift the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that all may see it. For the more we lift it, the more those more of those who are sin-bitten will also be able to see it. How can we lift this pole higher? By rejoicing in him, by sharing with others how, though we were weak and poor and helpless, God saved and redeemed us. Remember the concluding remarks of the flood study. The way to prevent history repeating itself with disaster is to share and tell it often. The more we're in the practice of sharing how God has delivered us, the less likely we are to fall into the folly of the Israelites and forget God's provision. And this includes sharing with ourselves. 
when we think and meditate on what God has done in our lives, we will be thinking of things that are true, honourable, just and pure. If we do this, Christ will be lifted up in our minds. If he is lifted up in our minds, we will be more ready to exalt his name in the presence of others. And if we do this, we will lift the pole declaring Christ's sacrifice higher, so that more will be able to look up on our Saviour, lifted on the cross, and they will be saved.